Do you want the title? The first one I'm going to read. I'm writing this from my mother's apartment. It's called Orange. All I could think about was being written into her life story. She made up a story about What was the inspiration for the story? My story is called Cigarettes. What was the genesis? I used to be almost dependent on voice. I want to talk to you. (laughs) And the conversation starts. Hello, and welcome to Off the Page, a podcast of stories, essays, and poetry from the Stanford University writing community. In each episode, a Stanford author will read a piece of their writing and then talk to us about their craft and process. I'm Mark Lebowski, Jones Lecturer in the Creative Writing Program. Neha Chaudhary Kamdar grew up in Hyderabad, India. She holds an MFA from Boston University, where she won the William A. Holodnack Prize for Fiction. Her writing has appeared in Salamander magazine. She lives in Berkeley, California, and is working on her first novel. This is the opening section of a novel under progress that I'm going to read now. Hyderabad, October 3rd, 1972. Don't believe every word I say, Noor Baba. But don't disbelieve me either. Perhaps we should agree on half-belief? Yes, that seems appropriate doesn't it? You must wonder why I'm writing to you after all these years we've spent apart, you chasing a different life, and I, an exile of my own making. I don't suppose you ever think of me. Why would you? I was never anything more than a servant of the court, a fool your mother kept around for her amusement. But I'm getting old, Nurbaba. I can feel the flesh cooling under my skin. Sometimes, when I wake up in the middle of the night, I see the jinnies of death crouching by the bed like faithful dogs. I'm not ready to be carried off on their wings yet, not before I've told you the story. Where should I begin? At 1948, when the world as we knew it ended? What a time it must have been to be Indian. To feel the tingle of freedom on one's tongue, no matter that the country was now halved, houses and bodies cleaved along the new border. Our city, Hyderabad, was splitting as well. The English sahibs were clearing out in a hurry, leaving wraith-like puffs of dust in the gymkhana clubs, the riding grounds, the cavalry barracks. Outside the city, the Indian army hovered, vultures circling a bleeding animal, too impatient to wait for it to die. We were scattered. We were scared. Called upon to choose sides, we were suddenly half here and half there. Half of us cowards, half foolishly brave. It was a moment in our history that belonged with the halves. You think I'd fit right in. But this is not a story about history. This is a story about love. There was a thing your mother used to say that I will never forget. Women die for love, men kill for it. But what about those of us who are neither one of these two beings so magnificent in their completeness? Where do the in-betweens among us go when we're threatened with love? For it is a threat, isn't it, to be consumed by something that makes you forget yourself? I should have remembered my place. I, Imarti, the Hijra, 
Imarte the eunuch, half man, half woman. I suppose I should have known better than to do what I did. I lost myself, Nurbaba. It was a winter morning in 1930 when I first saw your mother. She was in the bog, reclining on a carpet she had brought as part of her dowry, an ornate Safavid weave from Isfahan. She had picked a spot in the clearing under the banyan tree, the roots descending around her to create a protective arbor. There used to be a lily pond by the clearing in those days. The water moved like a shoal of silver-backed fishes and mirrored the light onto her face. It was that light I remember most vividly. It's different in the winter, a more milky, sleepy shade of gold. She wasn't a princess in that light. She wasn't a Begum Sahiba, consort to the crown prince of Hyderabad. She was just a fifteen-year-old girl, lying in a garden, nudging ladybirds onto her palm. She was just Nilofar. There were three maids attending to her that day, but I knew how to be quiet. I had learned to roll my knees up to my chest and make my body small. I could have spent hours crouching behind the flower bed, despite the moisture from the freshly watered lawn seeping through my clothes, the botanical smells tickling my nostrils. I was only discovered because I had stolen too close to the pond. When one of the maids, a twig-like girl with thick eyebrows and a shrill voice, walked up to pluck a lily for the princess, I held my breath and leaned into the shrubbery. I thought I had hidden myself well, until she screamed and fell back, crawling over to the others like a panicked animal. She must have seen my feet poking out from beneath the flowers, black and bare, black earth crusted around my toenails. My heart started to thump then, Nurbaba. This would be the end of Imarthi, I was sure of it. The maids would call the guards, and God knows how I would be punished. The guards loved rounding up hijras and doing unmentionable things to us, as if it were a sport. I was a little child when I learned about Kokam, a hijra who lived with the rest of our troop, and who had been mute as long as I could remember. The older hijras spoke of a time when Kokam was the most loquacious of them all, until being summoned by the guards in relation to a theft of food, Kokam returned to the troop after three days and never spoke again. I couldn't stand the thought of ending up like Kokam. I sat paralyzed behind the hedge, cursing my body that refused to move. When someone asked, What is that creature? I didn't dare look, but I knew it was Nilifer. People talked about that foreign accent she had, the voice that came from the very depths of her throat. It's one of those hijras, Begum Sahiba, a maid replied. I don't know how long it's been sitting there. Let me get the guards. There's no need for that. Summon the creature instead. I peeked around the foliage. The maids were glancing at one another. None of them moved. Begum Sahiba, one of them tried again. Perhaps you aren't familiar with the ways here. We, we don't summon it. I stood up, my legs quivering in my cotton silvar. Nilifer craned her neck, taking her time to scan the dirt on my face, my fingers, my feet. She raised a hand and beckoned me. Who are you? she asked, 
Imarti. Imarti? Like the Swede? She laughed. Whoever gave you that name? Must have been one of the other hijras, Begum Sahiba. I don't know. I've always had it. A hijra? How strange it must be. To be a hijra? She repeated the word a few times, like a child who had just learned the name of her favourite toy. And how old are you? Fifteen? Maybe sixteen? Have you always been a hijra, Imarti? I stared down at my fingers. My nails were jagged where I chewed them. I had a faint memory of someone applying a poultice of crushed chilies in my fingers when I was little in the hope that I would drop the habit. It hadn't worked. Come closer, Nilifer said. Don't be afraid. I walked tentatively toward her, but when she held her hand out, I lurched back again. One of the maids bent to whisper in Nilifer's ear, but Nilifer waved her away and smiled at me. I was petrified. I was thrilled. I took a step forward, and then another, my heart a hummingbird trapped in my chest. I had to slip my hand into hers just to keep myself from falling. What a curious creature, she said. It has the face of a boy with the voice of a girl. The hair of a boy with the clothes of a girl. What a funny thing. I looked at my hand in hers, black bark and her plump, pale flesh. I tried to see what she was seeing. A creature that was far too tall and far too narrow with bones that pushed insistently outward, under the skin. Nilifer had luscious dark hair set in waves that framed her cheekbones. She smelled of rose attar and eucalyptus. I had just turned my kurta inside out in the morning to get rid of the reek in the armpits. What are you doing here, Amarthi? Hiding in the bog like this? How did you get past the sentries? There's a gap in the eastern wall, Begum Sahiba. I slipped in through there. Weren't you afraid of getting caught? I wanted to see you, Begum Sahiba. She smiled. She had heard this before. Tell me, were you among the hijras that were singing and dancing outside the palace on my wedding night? I nodded, thinking back to the festivities. The palace had been divided up into the Zanana and Mardana for the wedding. The Zanana was lit with oil lanterns hanging in scalloped arches, fire glimmering off the Zertosi and mirror work on women's clothes. The Mardana was dimmer in comparison, illuminated by a row of earthen lamps, the delicate flames flickering in the breeze. Because men prefer the darkness to carry out their deeds, one of the hijras had giggled, pulling Hasari lower down her waist as she walked inside. Were you invited to the wedding? Nilifer asked. Oh no, Begum Sahibat, they would, they would never. No, because where would they put you? In the Zanana or the Mardana? The maids all laughed. People have ridiculed me my whole life, Nurbaba. When I used to go to the train tracks every morning to relieve myself, neither the men nor the women would have me squatting among them. Each month, when I went to collect grain rations, the same as everyone else. I was shoved out of the line for men and the one for women. When you're like me, you learn to accept the ridicule. You learn to expect it. But this felt different. 
Nilifer's shoulders jerked ever so slightly as she laughed. She splayed her hands over her mouth as though she were a little girl who had just said something she didn't know was funny, until the entire mehfil started to laugh. I might have felt insulted, but you should have seen her. Despite myself, I laughed too. Nilifer composed herself. Don't you hijras all know how to sing and dance? Dance for me, Marthi. Sing something. Do both. I jogged through my repertoire, landing finally on a verse by Firak. I knew some of the words were wrong. I had heard the couplet from Jira, the eunuch with whom I shared my rope strung cot at night. Jira, in turn, had heard it from someone else. I filled the gaps in the canto with my own lines and began tapping my heels like I had seen the court dancers do. I raised my arms and plucked the air, my hands keeping time with my feet. Nilifer was laughing again, clapping gleefully when I twirled around and bowed. What a funny creature, truly. I should put those bells around your ankles. She gestured with her hands. She was still learning the language. Uh, uh, what are they called? Gungru, Begum Sahiba, the maid said. Yes, I should have someone tie Gungru around your ankles. And where did you read Farak, you ridiculous thing? Oh, I just heard it somewhere, Begum Sahiba. I don't know how to read. Don't know how to read? Nilifer squinted into the light. Would you like to learn, Imarthi? I looked up, holding her gaze longer than I had with anyone my own kind. The heat bloomed in my stomach. Somewhere in the air was the smell of a kurta crusted with layer upon layer of my sweat. Nilifer stood up, the puffy fabric of her skirt rustling around her feet. It's decided then? You're mine now, Imarthi. I'm going to tie some gungru around your ankles and tether you somewhere in my courtyard. You're going to be my pet. You sing and dance for me, make me laugh whenever I want you to. And maybe I'll teach you how to write your name. One of you, she turned to the maids, give this thing a salt bath and some new clothes. I couldn't tell you how I felt then, Nurbaba. I could hear Jira's voice in my head, warning me to run for my life. Stay as far away as you can from the Nizam's family, Jira would say, always sceptical of wealthy men. I knew the risks. If the prince found out, I couldn't imagine any circumstances under which he wouldn't have me banished or imprisoned. But to be in the Begum's chambers, to be so close to this magnificent creature day and night, I was willing to throw my half-life away for that. Imarti, Nilifer asked before walking away. Do you want girls' clothes, or boys? I thought for a moment before saying, Both, Begum Saiba. I want both. I was late arriving at the palace that night, but the old woman who let me in said it was okay because a Begum never slept. What does that mean? I asked. Do you not speak Urdu, you imbecile? I said she never sleeps. She just never sleeps, that's all. When I entered the servants' quarters, the maids refused to touch me. Mamuna, the twig-like girl from the lily pond, brought a bucket of cold water and a pail of mud to the courtyard where the servants bathed. She handed me a thin white chibba and cocked her chin to a spot along the edge where the wall had a little hole 
for draining water into the gutter outside. The bigum said I should bathe with salt? Mud is good enough for you. I heard the maid stuttering behind me as I walked. There seemed to be more voices there than they had been before. I turned around. Seven of them had assembled in the arched hallway bordering the courtyard, some leaning against pillars, others settling comfortably on the steps, as though they had just gathered to watch the Masha. I knew what they wanted to see, Baba. They wanted to know how I looked over there. Forgive me for mentioning such a thing to you. It may seem like a thing too small and vulgar and definitely too ugly. But I see now, as I near the end of my life, that every little part of our stories is as significant as the whole. Our shame, our humiliation, all the pain we bear and every scar we wear. It all trickles together to make our choices for us, you know? But I digress. Oh, that bath on the very first evening. Years later we laughed about it, Maimuna and I. But that day I crouched closer and closer to the ground as I felt seven pairs of eyes searing through my back. I took off my kurta first and washed my upper body, scrubbing mud into my armpits until I could feel the rub in my bones. Then I put on the jibba on dripping wet skin and pulled off my silvar so I could wash my legs and other parts without exposing them. The night air felt like blades pressed against my wet skin. But it was also delicious, the clean water, the mud draining off my body, the promise of a corner in the depths of Nilifer's chambers. When I asked Mamuna for a silvar to wear underneath the jibba, one of the maids came up from behind and dug the hem of my thin garment. Why, what do you have to hide? They chased me around the room for a while, grabbing at my all-too-long arms and my all-too-clumsy legs. When they stopped, it was only because the matron, Saroj Bibi, walked in. Khoda Kevaste, give this thing something proper to wear. She wasn't tall, Saroj Bibi, but she was big, built like a sturdy farm animal. She walked up to me, close enough that I could see the fuzzy down on her quivering lip. The bigum has lost her mind, she said. I felt a fine spray of her spit on my chin. That foreign child has lost her fucking mind. And what can I say about the Begum? Nurbaba? Your mother? Had she, in fact, lost her mind? There were some who said that about her in later years. But I remember her as a girl, as that foreign child born in Istanbul, raised in France, and married to the Nizam's son in Hyderabad, where the only people she had for company were maids who whispered in languages she did not understand. In those early days of her marriage, she did the best she could to keep herself occupied. She liked lining up the maids on her terrace and teaching each of them parts of a Turkish song. Then she would play the baklama to their scratchy vocals and pretend as though everyone was in tune. Sometimes she would make us dance for her and even join in herself until Saroj Bibi interrupted proceedings. I was the one she came to for laughter. There was something about my very being that was amusing to her. Recite a firak couplet for me, Marti, she would say as she got dressed for dinner or for a party with the English sahibs. 
I had learned the words by then. Nilifer used to take me along when the poets held a mashaira in the palace. But depending on her mood, I would either say them right or distort them with my own syllables. I also started to make my own couplets about bees and clouds and love. Nilifer found them funny, even though I hadn't intended them to be, especially my musings on love. You presumptuous creature, she said. You wouldn't know the first thing about love. It pained me when she said this, but I forgave her. On evenings that the prince was to visit her chambers, Nilifer would engage the entire fleet of maids in dressing her up and making her rooms look like something out of a dream. Sometimes she wanted a canopy of jasmine flowers over her bed. Other times it was strings of glass beads that were to be hung from the ceiling. The maids all worked together to weave flower garlands or fashion a curtain with forty, maybe fifty strings of pink and yellow and green beads. But none of them could reach the ceiling, so I was called upon to fulfil that final and important part of Nilifer's vision. On days like that, not one person tugged at my clothing or laughed at me. The prince seldom stayed until morning. He was a shocking mirth. He had many interests. I suppose his wife was an interest too, but as Siroj Bibi once said, just one of many. We cleared out of Nilifer's chamber before the prince arrived, but she called upon me if she needed entertainment for the evening. I had been terrified of appearing before the prince for the first time, but his indifference, even the slight disgust in his face, reassured me. It's just a eunuch, he had said, tucking Nilifer's hair back and pulling her toward himself. If it pleases you, my little John, you can have it. I always brought my best act for the prince. Firak, Ghalib, Alama Iqbal, all with the deepest cadence my permanently prepubescent voice could muster. Nilifer smiled proudly at me as though she had created an exquisite work of art from dirt. You really are something special, she would later say, scratching a fingernail down the back of my neck. Once again, I would feel that pleasant fluttering in my chest for days. On the nights the prince visited, many of us servants sneaked out after he and Nilifer went to bed. I met Jira and the others sometimes, gathering around a small open fire, the way we used to before I left the troops' quarters and went to live in the palace. We passed around a beady plump with ganja, smoking and coughing while the others teased me about the company I had started to keep. Nilifer had given me a long green skirt with gold mangoes and a pink blouse that fit me perfectly except for the room left at the chest. I always wore this when I went to meet the other hijras. I had never had anyone admire my clothes before and loved to twirl around for them in the glow of the gold sigri. They wanted to know all about the Begum, and on the nights I didn't have anything new to tell them, I made up stories about things that hadn't happened, but easily could have. You're only some kind of Jamura to her, you know? Jira said one night, no longer teasing. A performing monkey, on a string. She was courting by the Sigri. Jira liked being referred to as a woman, 
and she was holding her palms to the heat. Jira had the blackest eyes set deep in her skull, and she hadn't cleaned out the smudges of coal around her lids that night. In the light of the cigarette, she looked like a hyena waiting in the dark for her moment to bounce. You know this, right? She continued. The Begum will use you for her entertainment, and when she's bored with you, she will throw you right back where you came from. The venom in her words surprised me. Jira, it's not like that. And then where will you go, Imarti? Come back to us. After having lived in the palace with the Begum, you'll never belong there. And if you take too long, you won't have a home with us either. You're just saying that because you're jealous, Jira. A block of coal rolled off the top of the pile, its embers rising and fading in the darkness. Jira laughed a quick, snarly laugh. You don't belong there, Amarti. You never will. She took a last drag of the beady, put it out, and walked away. It hurt and confused me, what Jira said. I tried to understand her as I walked back to the palace that night. Perhaps things were different for Jira. Some of us hijras, we had a before, you know? Jira never had that. This life was all she had ever known. When I was in the quarters, Jira and I used to gossip late into the night, whispering to each other in the heavy darkness of her room. I used to envy her ease. If only I could be more like her, I used to think. It would relieve the horror I sometimes felt at my life. I climbed back into the palace by way of one of the balconies in Nilifer's chambers. I took off my shoes and had only started towards the servants' rooms when I heard a silky rustle behind me. I knew the sound immediately. A bird trying to escape its cage? Nilifer asked. I turned around, bowed my head. I only went out to see some old friends, Begum Saiba. You smell like the earth. She came up close to me and raised her nose to my mouth. And somewhat like a dirty animal. Or old sweat. Begum Saiba, I... Come. She held out her hand. Keep me company. What about the prince? He left. He had some appointment at the Gymkhana Club. I took her hand. She led me to her chamber and out onto the terrace. I didn't know what she wanted or how she needed me to entertain her. Should I sing? Or, or a few couplets, maybe? Shh. She sat down on the rug and patted a spot beside her. Just sit. I only want company. That night, again, she looked like the young girl that she was, Nurbaba. Her hair was pulled back, her face cleaned of all the colours she smeared onto her lips and her cheeks and her eyelids every morning. May I ask you something, Begum Sahiba? Why don't you sleep at night? I'm the Begum Imarti. How dare you question me? She looked straight ahead. I can't stand it, she said softly. It's too much. Nothing is mine here, you know? All that is mine is far, far away, and I don't know if I will ever see... 
My family. Her voice caught in her throat. Nothing belongs to me, Marthy, not even the man I married. She folded her knees up to her chest. She looked small, like a sparrow, and seemed just as fragile. I belong to you, Begum Sahiba. I thought she would laugh out loud. Instead, she looked at me and smiled. She traced the angles of my bony face with the tips of her fingers. She lay on the rug, pulled me down next to her, and tucked her face beside my neck. You smell like the earth, Imarthi, she said. Then her breathing changed, and I knew she had fallen asleep. Hi, Neha. Thank you for being here on Off the Page and sharing that piece with us. Thank you for having me, Mark. And thank you so much for sharing work in progress, too, which is exceptionally brave. I was so fascinated this piece was about a eunuch, which I realized I knew basically nothing about. And I was just curious how you came to to write about that kind of protagonist. And maybe if you could also talk a little bit about like the social role that, that eunuchs played at this time and place. Yeah, so actually um, this novel sort of germinated from historical research more than... I, I didn't have the characters down, but it was a moment in history that I was really interested in. And this is my own city. I'm from Hyderabad. And... My mother's family has lived there for several generations. So some of the events that will probably happen or, you know, that I'll probably write about in later sections of the novel, which is in 1948, India was declared independent in 1947 from British rule. But Hyderabad was not a part of India then. And Hyderabad was ruled by the Nizam and his dynasty. So it was a kingdom of its own right in the center of the country, landlocked from all sides. And they wanted to either be independent or be part of Pakistan. So the Indian army basically in 1948 annexed Hyderabad and forced it to become a part of the Indian Union. And that was the bit of history that I was interested in, along with writing about the women of the Nizam's family. Nilofar actually is based on Princess Nilofar of the Ottoman Empire. So that's where my research began. And then I also started to find out a little bit about the role of eunuchs. This is not just, you know, in the in the early 20th century, but for centuries before that, in the Middle East, in South Asia, eunuchs have often been used to guard the harems of kings because of their specific biological status. They were considered not to be a sexual threat to the women who were in there, while also serving as an effective sort of physical barrier between anyone who might try to forcibly um, enter the harem. And so that's where I started reading about these really fascinating stories. And eunuchs are still very much a presence in public spaces in India. There's not much that I can say in terms of the passing of progressive laws in India over the last several decades, unfortunately. But one thing that I feel really heartened by is that India is one of the very few countries in the world that did um, officially recognize what they call the third gender. And so eunuchs are very much a part of our society. I've seen them, interacted with them growing up. They're still on the margins and they're still not fully integrated, but they fight in elections. They live where other people live. They're sort of on this weird sort of borderline area of being accepted and integrated into society. 
but not fully, not completely. And so it was sort of this gray space that I was really interested in exploring. And that's when I started thinking about a character who was not your typical, Yunaka would be hired officially by the kingdom to regard the harem, but just this person who'd worked their way into the chamber of the queen and had become a confidant, had become the one person that she grew to trust in her life in the city. And in developing the character of Imarti and and in working on this section is such a fascinating gray space, you know, liminal space for a character to occupy. Did it come easily to occupy this consciousness? No, not (laughs) at all. In fact, even I, when I thought of the character and I was very keen on it, it took me a really long time to actually start writing this novel because I was constantly plagued by this idea of imposter syndrome and also, you know, just there are all these questions that I think writers grapple with all the time, which is how do we write subjectivities that we haven't inhabited in our own lives? And is it is it even okay to do that? Is it ethical to do that? That actually continues to be a question for me, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I just feel really passionately about this character and I want to do going forward as much research as I possibly can as a person who's never personally been in that space. So I want to do the best that I can to know as much as I can about what it must be like to sort of occupy that liminal space in a society, whether that was 50 years ago or 70 years ago or today. But no, it's not easy. I think a big part of the difficulty is in my own mind in terms of just allowing myself to write this character. I think for me that that was the biggest hurdle that continues to be the biggest hurdle. I want to say that I've reached a point where I feel like I can legitimately write this character and try my best to do justice to it. But I think that is a source of of the difficulty more than anything else. Yeah. No, I, I, I've definitely experienced similar crises in my own writing. And there's not an easy answer. I mean, I could mm-hmm. say... I completely bought this character, but of course, I don't necessarily have the authority you're looking for in that regard. Do you think the whole novel will be from this character's perspective? So the way I have it um, sort of mapped out right now, and obviously, as writers, we know that the best laid plans, you know, can just turn into (laughs) something completely different. But the way I have it in my mind right now, it's going to alternate between sections of Imarthi's very long confession addressed to Noor and sections of Noor himself, parts of which are going to be in Hyderabad that he spends with the Nizam's family, with his family, but also parts of it in Turkey where he just wants to find out more about his mother who is dead. So it's going to be, I'm, I'm going to bring in Noor at some point as well. And I'm excited about having him to sort of just be this point of reflection for Imarthi because he's going to be much younger. He is ostensibly well, still a prince in some sense, but of a declining empire. And his status within the family itself is under question for a number of reasons. So he himself is dealing with his own marginalization within his social circle, the, the one that he wants to belong to. Um, I'm, I'm curious about the confessional voice in this thread of the book, the choice to have it be not simply a first-person reminiscence, but a letter addressed with a particular reader in mind and how that creates another source of tension in the writing that creates another character really in the piece. Is that always how you conceive of this section and what is that giving you or what do you like about that? I think the reason it began as a confession specifically is because of places that the plot will eventually Mm. hopefully go to and some of the things that Imarti ends up doing that affect 
the life of Nilofer and the life of Anur's life, which is why it's a confession that's addressed to Noor, giving him information that he does not have about his life at that point, but that will help him perhaps understand why he's positioned the way he's positioned in his in his family. But also I think in my mind when I when I first conceptualized Imarti, she was always a character with a very strong point of view, with a very strong perspective. And it just felt like not doing justice to that character to try and write her in third person, for instance. I wanted her voice to be on paper. I wanted this to be her words. I wanted sort of to try and think about, to try and play around with how this character might speak, given her experiences in life and given where she was, given where she ended up through all the years that she spends with Nilofer in the court. It just seemed important to give her that voice, but also for me, you know, just as a writer, just creatively, it was more exciting to be writing in her voice. I'm primarily, generally speaking, a first-person writer in any case. I, that just comes more easily to me than third-person does. But Imarti's voice specifically really fascinated me for some reason from the beginning, and I was like, this is definitely a voice that I want to write in. Yeah, and hearing you read it aloud just now, I really felt the strength of that voice. It really did feel like a monologue or like a confession. Uh, it didn't sound writerly in the way that sometimes is good and sometimes is, mm-hmm. is not. And I just think the the dynamism of speaking to someone, speaking to someone who has a relationship to the subject of what the character is discussing, and that opening warning of, don't believe every word I say, mm-hmm. let's agree on half belief. I mean, that is just an amazing gauntlet to lay down mm-hmm. for the first section of the book and just creates this wonderful tension. So I want to talk now about the relationship between Imarti and Nilfer, which is so complex and seems to embody so many levels of exploitation mm-hmm. and and cruelty and tenderness and, and connection and shared loneliness. And I'm, I'm just curious, like, how your understanding of that relationship has evolved as you've worked on this project. You know, it's always been a really complex relationship. I think when you're talking about people who work, people who are employed to work in the domestic sphere, and the people who employ them, which is a subject that I've written about before, and I sort of keep coming back to because, again, I, I grew up in India, and it's a very common thing over there. Society is just structured in a way where people have People employ domestic help. My family's always employed domestic help. And I didn't, it's not something that I thought about too much when I was a child, obviously, but as I was growing up, you know, you start to see the problems of that relationship and just just how deeply imbricated it is within within the class structure of India. And how these sort of, you know, these these relationships are also entrenched in a way where there's nothing that you as an individual can do about it. When I was like 17, 18. And I was at that stage in my life where I would go up in arms against everything. And I tried to talk my mom into not having hired help at home. And it was an insane idea. And obviously she would not, that's not something that she was willing to do. And it didn't make sense for her for several reasons, because my mom was a single mom, she was working, and she just, she needed help at home. But yeah, so this is something that I've grown up seeing. And I think the wanting to sort of scratch out, eke out the, the how problematic this this relationship can be, but also what it brings to the individuals involved in this relationship on both sides 
just the complexity of that has just always been something that's fascinated me. And I think when you take that and put it in a setting such as this, where we're talking about a royal family, uh, you know, the Nizam's family back in the 1940s, he was estimated to be the richest man in the world because they had diamond mines. So, you know, when you when you take that relationship and you place it in a setting like this, I think that all those differences, I think that the privilege is magnified and the differences are magnified as well. On top of everything else is the fact that Imarti is a eunuch. You know, even in some of the sections that I that I read from the excerpt today, there are these these parts where Nilofar is laughing at Imarti and Imarti talks about how this would have offended her or should have offended her. But Nilofar was just so, she was this picture of affection and Imarti couldn't help but laugh alongside. And I think that things like that are going to continue to come up in the rest of the book. At the heart, I think that that's really what the book is about. And I think that the complexity of those feelings is so apparent even in even in this this opening section. I mean, although there are moments when I'm kind of repulsed by Nilfer's attitude to MRT at the same time in that last part you read, you also see that this is a 15-year-old who, you know, although living in immense luxury and privilege, doesn't have any sense of connection to anything, any sense of like being close to her family or belonging or or security, really. So that moment when Imarti says, I belong to you, I mean, it's like, Mm -hmm. you're like, no, don't, don't (laughs) put yourself in that position. But it's also like this act of love. And, and also, I think that everyone, although the, these are very particular circumstances, I think pretty much everyone has been in the position of being in an unequal Mm -hmm. love relationship Mm -hmm. and doing things, you know, in a relationship yeah. that you probably shouldn't have done, accepting <laughs> circumstances that you probably shouldn't have accepted. I mean, it's it's could not be more human. I'm curious, like when you talk about the the social critique that you're that you're interested in exploring and these inequities, I I wonder how that does that question of like a social critique ever intersect with an idea about audience? You know, in terms of is this is this a work that you really intend for? For Indian readers to look at things about society that you want to engage with versus I need to explain sort of the social role of eunuchs to, let's say, you know, a Western mm-hmm. audience? Mm-hmm. Or is it more just like, well, people will make of it what they make of it? I think it is It is that people will make of it what they make of it. I actually try not to. And in fact, I, I, I typically don't think about the specific political issues in my work when I'm writing, because I think, you know, when when that is foremost in your mind, that just makes for bad fiction. And this is sad. I wish this wasn't the case, but I think that this is the truth, that when you're writing about an issue specifically, then I think maybe you should just write an essay, you know, um, rather than write a story. Um, However, I think over the years that I have been writing and have been practicing the craft, and when other people read my work specifically, I think that when you're when you're hearing what other people are seeing in your work and you see that reflected back at you and that's when you realize okay there are some things that people repeatedly see in my work right and you start to become conscious of the fact that there are certain issues um, or certain questions that you as a writer are just naturally drawn to over and over again so I think what ends up happening is that when I'm writing I'm still just thinking of the story and of the characters above anything else. 
they have to be characters that are deep enough, that are written sort of thoughtfully enough that they can capture someone's imagination and someone's interest beyond, I think, cultural limitations. Um, so that's the first thing on my mind. But I will say that having heard things about my, you know, having having seen how people read my work and having heard certain things about my work over and over again, what ends up happening is that you become um, conscious of the questions that your work is coming back to repeatedly. And you as an individual, even on your non-writing time, I think, become more thoughtful about how this will play out in your fiction. Do you ever find yourself writing against how you've been perceived or in reaction to that? Maybe, not so far. And I think that that's because, again, when I begin to approach a story, it really is a character's and the plot. I also, I think that, you know, we're all we're all attracted to certain kinds of characters and we're all attracted to certain kinds of situations as writers. And we know that we're probably going to be in that sort of large playing field of uh, places, circumstances, historical periods, etc., etc. So no, not so far I think I've been able to avoid that. But that's something I'm going to start thinking about. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Neha, so much for being on Off the Page and sharing this early glimpse of a novel that will someday be out in the world. Yeah, thanks so much, Mark, for having me. This was so much fun. I'm glad I did this. This episode was produced by Alessandra Wallner, Maddie Curtis, and our talented team of producers, editors, and coaches. Aaron Wu, Sienna White, Aparna Verma, Yui Lee, Claudia Haymack, Christopher Laboa, Victoria Wan, and Jet Hayward. Thanks to Leland Quarterly for their editorial help, especially Zui Zhao. Thanks to Jonah Willingans for his supervision, and to Ivan Bolin, Christina Ablatza and Osei Jackson at the Creative Writing Program. For their generous support to the Stanford Storytelling Project, we'd like to thank the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, Stanford Arts, and Bruce Braden.